just the name alone, Furby, like it's kind of impossible to know what that even means, but it's on the <laughs> heels of things like Tamagotchi being super popular. And I had been a camp counselor for a number of years during that time. So whatever was uber popular, there were always hundreds of kids who also had it at camp. So they'd definitely like be popping up in that summer after they came out. And it was on the heels of some of those other things like Tamagotchi was the one that everybody had. And, and I think it was sort of like it, it made sense when you're that age, you, you want to take care of something. And, you know, before you had toys that you could really interact with, it was just your imagination and you take whatever doll was around and that was your baby. So like it made sense in the sort of evolution of these toys for kids. And I think those big eyes must have just done it for everyone. 100% agree. So I want to know what was your favorite song of the late 90s, early 2000s? My favorite late 90s, early 2000s song. It's probably Wonderwall. Okay, we can work with that. I just ask because we want to know what our guest's favorite songs are, and if we can remotely tie it into a parody of Furby, we will try to do it. <laughs> All right, well, I mean, there's not that many lyrics to Wonderwall, so maybe that, maybe that's, you got a shot. <laughs> eBay was gonna be the way, but you only made a buck or two. By now, you should have played the Dow, but your money's gone and better do. I don't believe that any Furby's gonna win it all for you. It's over now. And all the Furbs they sold to you, you're finding. The resale price you set for them is diving. And there were many things that you would like to say to them, but you don't know how. I say for the price they paid for you ain't worth it. Cause after all, you're a fuzzy ball. Today's podcast guest is a behind-the-scenes executive for CBS Viacom who unexpectedly found himself taking up more space center stage on The Late Late Show with James Corden. Today we're going to talk about what it's like to work in the television industry, as well as the importance of silliness and mirth in television. And you might also find out that our guest has a secret tie-in to Furby. So stay tuned as we dive into the Ditherverse. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Into the Ditherverse, the Furb World podcast that deep dives into the creative minds of Furby collectors, makers, crafters, influencers, and all-around nerds in general. My name is Jay. I'm the communications mortal that lives at the behest of the Furb World family, a.k.a. the Furb World Dithering. The Furb World Dithering is a collective of elder gods and Furb-adjacent beings who seek to help humanity live more joyous, creative, and fiercely compassionate lives. You can follow our adventures on Instagram and our website, FurbWorld.com. Today's imaginary sponsor is Unicorns. Unicorns. They don't get the job done, but they look great doing it. 
Today, I am so excited to introduce you to Nick Bernstein, an amazing television executive and wealth of knowledge on television history. We're going to talk about late night shows, the Muppets, and of course, Furby. So now without further ado, please allow me to welcome Nick Bernstein. Hello, Nick. It's great to meet you. Thank you so much for being on the Furb World podcast. Nice to meet you, too. Happy to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you thought the Furb World podcast would be fun? Yeah, of course. My title is a Senior Vice President of Late Night Programming on the West Coast for CBS, which means that I'm the studio and network executive that oversees The Late Late Show with James Corden. And that is my main job. Uh, I do oversee a couple of other shows as well in the late night sphere, spinoffs from The Late Late Show and also uh, Colbert spinoffs. So shows like Carpool Karaoke, Tuning Out the News, which is on Comedy Central, done shows like Drop the Mic and Game On and uh, quite a few other uh, fun shows like that. And I, when I first heard about uh, when you first invited me onto the Fur World podcast, I thought they must have me confused for someone else. <laughs> and I just thought it was such an amusing, enjoyable idea that it would be foolish of me to not take advantage of this opportunity to uh, join you on the podcast. Aw, thank you. That means so much to us, especially coming from you. And for the record, we, we absolutely know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to start with Furby questions today. Uh, I'd love to know, where were you in like the late 90s? What was going on for you at the time? What was the world like for Nick Bernstein then? Well, you're going to find this unbelievable because you didn't know this. I grew up with a friend whose father was one of the people who created the Furby. No way. Yeah. I, I know Richard Levy, who I guess he's like the third of the three uh, folks, he was the one who brought it to like the toy convention and helped get it sold and, and brought it to the masses. So I've been aware of Furbies for uh, like pretty much as soon as they were out in the market. That is, oh my God, we had no idea you were Furby royalty or connected. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Adjacent, really adjacent on that. Furb adjacent. Oh my God. Yeah. So Caleb Chung is the one who is, in my opinion, responsible for Furby's soul and who we just think is super cool. And then there's David Hampton who co-developed Furby with Caleb Chung. And then you put Richard Levy in the mix. And oh my God, that is like the Furby holy trinity right there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and he was a toy inventor and still is probably. I don't live in the same place that I grew up. And uh, so I, I'm still friendly with his daughter, but I haven't really kept up on the parents. But, you know, it's I had to be wild to grow up with like, oh, yeah, my dad creates and sells toys. Totally. And so but even at that point, uh, she's a few years younger than me. She's really closer to my younger brother than than me even. But they were probably like tail end of high school at that point. And I had just graduated college right around then. So, yeah, we were just like we'd heard about it. You know, just the name alone, Furby, like it's kind of impossible to know what that even means. But it's on the <laughs> heels of things like Tamagotchi being super popular. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was something like Teddy Ruxpin that seemed like a marvel where it was something, a, a toy a, uh, that could talk back to you. It made a lot of sense that this would be a, a popular, a popular toy for the holidays. And then it exploded into like the biggest toy of the holidays. Oh, yeah. And for those who weren't there in 1998, 1999, Furby was a big deal. Um, in 1998, Furby had only sold 1.8 million units, quote unquote, a.k.a. Furbies, uh, by the end of the year. 
But then in 1999, the following year, they sold 14 million Furbies, which is just a night and day difference. That holiday season was wild. Furbies were just flying off the shelves. It was hard to get one. Like you had to wrestle with parents trying to get it for the holidays. It, it was beyond. And I have to say for those of us Gen Xers that live through that, uh, we had not seen a toy release, you know, as, as big as Furby. We had seen, you know, Cabbage Patch Kids. We had seen Teddy Ruxpin from, from Worlds of Wonder, which is one of my all-time favorite toys. We'd even seen Tickle Me Elmo, which I believe at the time sold around like 5 million units, but we had not seen anything near like Furby. And I think Furby was just such a game changer for kids at the time and also for the toy industry itself. Yeah, I had been um, a, a camp counselor for uh, a number of years during that time. So whatever was uber popular, there were always hundreds of kids who also had it at camp. And so so they'd definitely like be popping up uh, in that summer after they came out and and it was on the heels of some of those other things like Tamagotchi was the one that everybody had when you're that age you, you want to take care of something and you know before you had toys that uh, you could really interact with you know it was just your imagination and you take whatever doll was around and that was your baby so like it, it made sense in the sort of evolution of these toys for kids and I think those big eyes must have just done it for everyone. They totally did. And I think they really set the stage for those kinds of interactive toys that kids have nowadays, which are so different than what we used to have. I sort of missed out on the era where something might interact with me. It seemed so cool. Yeah, it really did. Like kids our age, we didn't really have anything like that. I had a lot of puppets. Yes, we love puppets. I had like a fairly large Ralph, a Rolf, I should say, the dog. Yeah. Um, that was probably up to my knee. It was it was massive. And it, like I kept it in my room like through high school. And actually, I don't I would kind of wish I knew where it was now, but uh, I don't have it now. We do have a Kermit in our living room. Oh, I love it. The Muppets are just so wholesome. I also have a Rolf the dog puppet. I never got to have one as a kid, but I recently went on Etsy, found one that was in like mint condition. And uh, yeah, that little guy sits on my shelf and watches me every day. It's very cute. So speaking of the Muppets, I have to know, who's your favorite Muppet? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, you know what? I mean, it's it's hard to go against Kermit. I did like the person who was trying their hardest to corral the craziness, sometimes successfully, most times unsuccessfully. Um, but I'd say like, largely, he just seemed to be the, the type of friend you'd hope to have and want to have. So... One, I think I mentioned in the beginning, like one of the shows I get to help to oversee is the Carpool Karaoke series that we do for Apple. And we did an episode where Jason Sudeikis rode in a car with the Muppets. And there were mm -hmm. like half a dozen in there and they had the van and we got to meet some of the puppeteers and see how the whole operation works, how they travel together, how they, <laughs> they rode in the van. I, I think like we all turned into kids. Actually, it wasn't the only time we've had the Muppets on quite a time, quite a lot. We did. We had Kermit and Pepe. Is that the name of? Yeah. 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 Pepe's Pepe's the prawn. Yes. The prawn. Um, very probably the funniest character. Those two and Beaker and Piggy did a drop the mic episode where they did a battle rap against each other, which is also very, very funny. And they were great sports. I mean, this is all fairly recent. In Southern California, there's this thing that happens every year, at least it did pre-pandemic, uh, called a... Uh, panto which is based on british pantomime which is like uh i don't know if you're familiar with it it's like a kids holiday musical with 
contemporary songs, but it's a very interactive back and forth event. So when a bad guy comes out, the kids are the kids boo the bad guy and the bad guy will the baddie will talk back. When the sort of narrator character comes out, he says hi, everyone says hi back. There's like it's a real interactive thing. In one of the more recent shows, they did a version of The Wizard of Oz and Kermit played the wizard and they sang Rainbow Connection during oh. the show. And I kid you not, every single adult was absolutely bawling. And the kids were looking at us like, what is your problem? <laughs> and we were like, wow. we don't understand how special this is right now. They're literally yeah. singing this song to us. I Like we, we lost it. It was yeah. really, yeah. So I guess it's hard to say anyone but Kermit. Wow, I, I get it. It's like, I love the Rainbow Connection. I, I want that song played at my funeral. I believe, <laughs> well, I mean, not to get maudlin on what is an otherwise really fun uh, podcast, but like <laughs> Jim Henson's funeral is one of the most yeah. emotional things I've ever watched footage of. Yeah, um, same <laughs> just is like an absolutely gut-wrenching thing and i yeah. think it, they showed it it must have been in his documentary that was the last time i saw it or the most recent time i saw it they did one on hbo maybe yeah i think a couple places have featured it and i think it's been sort of re-aired every now and then i, I feel like i saw it even once on like cbs sunday morning yeah yeah that's a hard one to top yeah it was just so special to watch and see how much he impacted people's lives and really how much he helped build a community of people that quite honestly a lot of them are still together and i just think that's so cool um i also just i love the fact that they recorded that because it gives us a space to have collective grief and even now when we listen to the songs we experience that sense of joy and wonder and also that collective grief that the person who created this is no longer here I feel like that's kind of one of the larger functions with the Muppets in general is that it allows us as kids to experience things that are wondrous and amazing. But then at the same time, you know, in Sesame Street, when we lost Mr. Hooper and we got to see yeah. what grief looks like, that was a big deal. And for a lot of us kids, that might have been the first loss that we ever experienced in life. And it kind of set the stage for like, OK, this is how we grieve. This is how we collectively join together and acknowledge what happened and hold each other's pain and hold space for ourselves, which is honestly such a critical part of building any good community. So for people that like say they don't get the Muppets, I, I just I feel bad for them because it's like you're missing out on stuff that is just so amazing and also just so incredibly profound. Yeah, I think you're right, man. Uh, there's this quote. I'm going to see if I can pick it yeah. up real quick. You just reminded me of something on Sesame Street. There was, a, again, a documentary about the 50 years of Sesame Street. It happened within the last eight months or so that it was on. And it is just like you of all people, I'm sure, will will love this, love watching it. It was called The Street Gang, I think. Just in the very first few minutes as they're describing what the show is as the like they have this old footage from the 60s and they're trying to formulate what the show is in talking about the beginnings of the show they said sesame street is what television would do if it loved people instead of trying to sell to people wow and i had to stop what i was doing and just think about that for like the next two hours it was such a profound statement to me considering <laughs> what i spent my entire life doing and right. really enjoying and loving and yet, like, what the power of this medium could do and be for people also is what Sesame Street is. And that just seems sort of encapsulated it in a way that I, uh, I'm i still thinking about eight months later. As you should be. I mean, 
every television executive. They should have that mantra on their wall. They should meditate on it every day. It's super important because TV really does help build community. I think that's so important. I mean, like Jim Henson started in advertising. The Muppets were originally, he created them to to be an advertisement, selling products to people. And eventually he realized, wait, kids watch advertisements. Maybe if we made educational programming, which wasn't really a thing before that, if we made it so it kind of looked like a TV show or it looked like advertisements or it looked like something almost for adults a little bit with a lot of fun things thrown in, maybe kids will watch that and learn something and kind of get a sense of where they are in the world, who they are, what they want want to do that sort of thing you'll uh you'll love the street gang documentary because they do they spend a lot of time talking about jim henson's involvement like uh where he started how he got the the puppets into into pop culture onto sesame street and beyond and what i'm trying to do essentially is promote other shows on your podcast i think (laughs) that's perfectly fine with us So now that this is a show about Muppets and puppetry, I swear we'll get back to Furbies at some point. But I did want to ask you, I heard when you were in college, you may have written a paper that had something to do with Sesame Street and the connection to Laugh-In. And I just think that's awesome. And I have my reasons for asking this question, but and I'll get to that in a second. But I want to know, um, was that true? What was that about? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. It was it was a, a thesis that I that I did uh, when I was in school. I had been interested in that era of television. Even when I was in high school, NBC put out a special that was the 25th anniversary of Laughing, which was the first time that I got a chance to see most of the sort of best of footage in sort of one fell swoop. And I, I'd already been a fan of, of sketch comedy. And, and so to see one of the precursors to the shows like Saturday Night Live and, and In Living Color, that was sort of more of my parents' generation. I, it kind of lit something in my, my head that was like, well, this is incredible. Not that I knew when I was 15 or 16 that I would use it at some point, but it always sort of stuck in my head. And so when we were talking about sort of at the time generational television, Laugh-In really came out as like, well, this is one of those shows that I think might not get as much attention as it deserves in the late 90s. Not that my paper was going to go anywhere, but I just thought, well, this is something I think that uh, that would be really fun to write about and spend a little bit more time learning about. And, you know, this is still pre-internet video being a thing. So finding footage basically was like (laughs) trying to get my professors to loan me VHS tapes if they had them. Right. Throughout the process, I came across a book that talked about the beginnings of Sesame Street. And one of the producers of Sesame Street was walking down the (laughs) walking down a street one day and heard a bunch of kids in a playground saying one of the catchphrases from from laughing. They were just repeating, here comes the judge, which was a Sammy Davis Jr. character. (laughs) And a light bulb went off in her brain that was like, wow, if kids are watching television and able to replicate what they saw there on the playground, what if we created a show that allowed that same thing, but taught them how to read like language, math. And so that was sort of the seedlings of the beginnings of, of Sesame Street. And so a year later, in that same playground, people were repeating phrases from Sesame Street. And, you know, 50 plus years later, it is the probably the most important show on uh, that's ever been created. Yeah, I totally agree. 
And I think something that's really important for people to understand is before Sesame Street, there was really nothing like it, at least not on that scale, not like broadcast nationally. There might have been really hyper local shows that featured like a clown doing fun things for a few minutes. But oftentimes those shows had a lot of sponsors, a lot of really heavy advertisements in them that were for adults. And the shows were often over the top and wacky and zany. They weren't necessarily focused on any kind of education or community building. They were just, quote, for fun. So yeah, Sesame Street was a super pivotal moment when it comes to the development of what we know today as children's television programming. But I brought up the question because you and I have something in common. And now here's where I know something that you don't know is that we both did academic papers in college on puppets and television. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I don't think there's a whole lot of people in the world who have ever done that. So I feel like we're both in one of the smallest clubs in the world. But I think puppets are really powerful. And that's one of the things I talked about in my paper is the idea that in ye olden times, you could have a puppet performance where the puppets are criticizing the king and where like, if you and I had said that at the time, we'd be beheaded. But if a puppet says it, suddenly it's cool. And it's sort of a way for people in power to take criticism and feedback and realize, oh, I need to listen to what the populace is saying. And to bring it around back to television. I feel like that's very much what late night has done, especially in recent years. Like it used to be late night, you know, news and shows would be very much about having fun and sort of maybe just gently poking fun at the realities that were happening. But now there's this intersection of shows that really dissect and talk about what's going on in the news and the events of the day. And I feel like that's a very big part of the onus now on late night is to sort of hold that mirror up to society and say, here's what's going on. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that hybrid now that late night really faces, which is talking about the news, talking about really serious things a lot of the times, but also being just incredibly entertaining and oftentimes just downright silly. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that, you know, I've been in late night since 2000. That was the first year that I had worked in the late night department. And not long after I was there, uh, 9-11 happened. And for me, that was the the first time that something incredibly serious and devastating happened that these comedians all had to respond to and react to. But it was drastically different than, say, you know, the 2000 election, which in retrospect, it feels like we treated it all as if it was just sort of a silly situation, (laughs) especially, you know, 16 or 20 years later when, when the stakes I'm not sure they were higher or not, but it certainly was felt even more divisive. But late night still treated it more. I felt like I I remember more jokes than serious diatribes. And 9-11 was sort of like building back. All right, well, how are we going to find some type of light and bring a little bit of bring at least a smile after these terribly difficult days and, and terrible things to watch on television? So it was sort of like a real slow process back to to what were considered more normal in quotes shows of all right these are the headlines these are what we're going to make fun of let's go to the entertainment section let's go to sports world let's do the you know squirrel on skis and you know that was still also i think the beginnings of the daily show at that point having even a, a bigger voice in late night than they had prior where it was like a I think even from the Kilborn era, it was really interesting to watch, but there was a little bit more of a sarcastic tone, which I think was probably emblematic of the 90s. I think that um, all of these shows sort of really form around whatever the host's intentions are. And so as people decided to be a little bit more serious and, and not feel, I think, the urgency to only tell jokes, but do a little bit of truth telling, for lack of a better word, 
the tone of some of these shows changed and then expanded. And so there is sort of like a much wider swath of late night shows out there, all of which react to the day's events, but how they decide to tackle it is really dependent on the person at the helm, right? So no one's going to ignore whatever the thing that happened that day is that we've all been mostly focused on. There's not a lot of introduction that you have to do at 11.30 at night or 11 o'clock at night or whenever you're watching this at this point. Uh, Chances are you've heard about whatever that event is in the day. It's almost impossible not to acknowledge whatever that is. Whether you want to spend one minute on it or 15 minutes on it is really dependent on, on the person there. But I do think that a lot of people watch and react and process through the late night shows more now than probably they ever did. But I do think also there are obviously less of them and no one who loomed as large as someone like Johnny Carson uh, in the 60s and 70s and even most of the 80s. But, you know, I, I my old boss, whose name is Rick Ludwin, he passed away a few years ago. He he would tell me when when this similar tragic situations happened in the late 60s and early 70s, almost all of which revolved around Vietnam and just the amount of footage that was on television during that time. Johnny would start a a show by saying, it's been a rough day. We've all seen what happened, but we're going to do our best to present to you a fun hour of entertainment. And here we go. And that was it. That was, it was enough to just acknowledge that we've all been through this, but our job now is to make you laugh. Hope that you have a nice time. And it's been a part, I think, of late night for a long time. But I think that it is politics and pop culture are so enmeshed now that it's even more so than than ever, which is crazy. Even after the last six, seven years, it feels like it's ramped up just as much now as it was in 2015, 2016. That's really true. And I think that's really why it's a good idea to have an idea of television history, especially if you're in the profession. You should know something about television history, how people deal with collective tragedy or how people acknowledge and feel validated and even, you know, get a sense of like a catharsis in watching something as simple as a late night show. Uh, You mentioned Rick Lidwin and I know a little bit about him. I would love for you to just sort of tell us a little bit about what it was like working with him. What was that about? He was he went to Miami University in Ohio. Um, that was where he basically got his start learning how to do radio and broadcast. He worked on a show there that was their sketch comedy show. He worked on shows like The Precursor to Good Morning America, which was like a local show in Chicago that Regis Philbin happened to host. And he um, he worked on a show called The Mike Douglas Show in the 70s, which was sort of like a precursor to shows like Ellen or The Rosie O'Donnell Show. So he got his start learning how to produce. And then he came out here and worked on, (laughs) he worked on a show called Real People. um, (laughs) And at that time was trying to showcase actual human beings doing interesting, real, real things. It wasn't a, it wasn't a construct. And then in the early 80s, he, he got a job at NBC working in the specials department. He really loved live television. So anything from uh, New Year's Eve specials or the Rose Parade or the uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade, <laughs> any any parades. Um, <laughs> he did. Uh, he worked on like the Motown 25th uh, anniversary, wow. which was the uh, most famous for uh, the first time uh, anybody saw the moonwalk. Wow. And uh, although it's, I actually I say that uh, this is a real deep dive. Um, it was the it was what made the moonwalk famous, not technically the first time it was ever on TV which I just learned was on top of the pops six months earlier by oh, wow. one of the three guys, uh, three people who are in the, the band Shalimar. If, uh, 
We, yeah, it was a wild deep dive. If you would look in the history okay. of the moonwalk. Um, something I'm sure all of your uh, Furb World podcast <laughs> listeners are going to be pausing yeah. this to find immediately. Yeah, um, they're going to pause it and they'll be like, quick, get me a book. I need to look I this up. I have to watch Tonight's the Night by Shalimar on top of the pops <laughs> in the summer of 82. Okay, we'll, we'll look and it then, up. I'm, I'm going to put that in the show notes. <laughs> um, it was, I just saw, anyway, it was in Rolling Stone not that long ago, so. Regardless of that, he worked on all these specials, but he had a real love for um, Late Night. And oftentimes, either Late Night with David Letterman or The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson would do anniversary specials or primetime specials. And he was in charge of that. And that's what led him to uh, overseeing the Late Night department from the late 80s on. And he, he really uh, he really loved Letterman, but he championed Leno as well um, for The Tonight Show. And he was uh, the person who brought Jerry Seinfeld to NBC because he'd seen him do stand-up and thought he was ready to do something in prime time. And, and he was really like the, the one person who tr- truly believed in Jerry and Larry David's vision, so much so that he took some of his budget that was supposed to be for specials and he carved it out so that they could do a four-episode order. And uh, as they like to say, as Jerry and, and Larry have said on various specials about the history of Seinfeld, they said, when you're doing, when you get a pickup, a polite, respectful order at that point was 13 episodes. It was an insult if you got a six episode pickup. We got four. And oh, yet that God. was the start of, uh, you know, uh, another genius run. So he just loved television and comedy. And he was really particularly interested in broad comedy. And he th- always thought that the sort of edge and edginess of late night would eventually become mass comedy as well. And so that's what he was always sort of had an eye on and an eye out for. And he shared a lot of his expertise with me and his vision for how to be a good executive was something that I took a lot of pride in, in learning and trying to uh, replicate in my career too. He always was like, I could have a day where I watch three or four shows. I laugh a lot. I tell the people who made them good show and I go home. That is a perfectly normal day. Like if you don't have a note, you don't have to give a note. And letting creative people be creative, I, I think is just, um, it's something that can be very hard to, to do sometimes to not want to get your hands <laughs> dirty also, but, but it, it usually leads to, to the best type of TV. He seems like an amazing person, and I'm really glad you got to work with him. I think passing the torch is so important in television, and in a lot of ways, maybe more so than cinema, because think about it, like when you're on a film crew, you might be there for two or three weeks, you might be there for a couple months, but with television, especially with, you know, a nightly show, it's night after night after night for sometimes for years, hopefully, you know, more than one season. So I feel like it's really important for people on the other side of the camera for television to have some kind of sense of community or family or at least like a really good working office relationship because that comes through on the camera the audience might not understand what it is that makes a show so good but i feel like when a show is really good uh it's often because the people behind the scenes really care about each other or they're really trying or they want to make something really great and they're working together to do it speaking of behind the camera you've kind of recently made the transition from behind the scenes to in front of the camera and for our listeners who watch the show they will have noticed that you often sit in this director's chair and at one point the director's chair got higher and higher and there were just shenanigans happening on the show and while the show was funny before the silliness level just really took off during the pandemic and i'm wondering when you went into television was that something you ever envisioned being such an active part of the show <laughs> it was Never anything I would have envisioned nor wanted. (laughs) I would be lying if I said it wasn't fun, but no, I never had any desire or aspiration to do anything in front of the camera. I I like being behind the scenes. I like being in the 
control room, but all of us in any field had to react uh, to the pandemic in ways to make sure that we could still do our jobs. And for the Late Late Show, for most late night shows, they started by going back, doing shows from home through Zoom or something Zoom equivalent. And that worked for a while, but it's also very hard to do comedy to nobody. I really felt for James and everyone when you're, you know, you're just, you're, you're in the void, essentially. James was in his garage. We were watching through Zoom and eventually he'd have some people on Zoom as well. And sometime about six months into the pandemic, we got the okay to go back into the studio, but it was with some real parameters. Everyone still had to be six feet away and masked. Nobody could, we couldn't have an audience yet. Um, The only people that were allowed in the room were the camera operators and audio and some grips and uh, just the people who had to be there. And then uh, eventually they allowed a handful of producers or writers to also sit in the rooms to be an audience. Instead of James just going to his normal monologue spot like he used to and stand there and tell jokes essentially to just his staff, who most of whom have probably already seen the jokes, then he, he decided to start at the desk and kept it a much looser environment. And by then, you know, everyone had been working there for five plus years. So it's a very tight knit staff. Like you said, it's a, got a very family environment atmosphere. And so James started to get into some either the personal lives of, of the people who work there or just whatever was going on. It was just a sort of a free for all. And whenever he wanted to, he had a chance to go to the prepared jokes that were on his prompter. But when he got there, just was whenever he wanted to, because the, the amount of time that we took to tape the show, we, we took a longer period of time. It wasn't like we taped for 45 minutes and then we're out. Sometimes that first act would go 30 or 35 minutes. And the majority of us still were watching on Zoom at that point. But having a blast and, and talking to each other in the uh, in the notes of, of the Zoom and, and just, just enjoying whatever was going on there. I still, at that point, wasn't allowed into the building, but I was really looking forward to it and I was excited about it. And I got permission after I got, got my shots to go back to this office my office is in the same building and location as the Late Late Show. So also, I guess I should say throughout this year or so, it was I, I have curly hair and I had it short for a real long time, but I, I didn't get a cut during the pandemic because it's anyone who has curly hair knows it's like it's very hard to cut curly hair. Uh, and I wasn't going to put that on anyone in my family to try and do it. I didn't want to shave <laughs> it off. So I just let it keep going. And then it got to this fairly... It was really long. It's it's pretty long now. Um, yeah. So they all thought it was. They thought I was having a breakdown. Um, <laughs> I wasn't. I just uh, thought it was kind of fun. And then they invited me. You know, they were excited to have me back. I was excited to be back. You know, I mean, as anyone knows, like to go a year plus without seeing people who you saw every day. It was a lot. And it was so fun. Like we all really appreciated it. And they wanted it like anytime something new was happening, like it just gave them more fodder for the show. And so they decided (laughs) the first day I was back, uh, they wanted to put me in a really high chair at the bar on the set. And I was like, whatever you want, like, I'm, I'm happy to do. I thought this is like a funny day. And then they were even during that taping, they were like, we're just going to raise that chair every day this week. (laughs) <laughs> which they did to the point that on that final day that we taped four days a week. So on that Thursday, my chair was literally as high as the lights. Uh, oh I was like, it was not safe. And it probably should have been looked at by someone in safety. Uh, but <laughs> there weren't that many people working at that point. So 
we all kind of got away with it, which is sort of like the theme of late night, I guess. <laughs> it was a it was a wild week. And I was like, well, that was fun. And now it's time to go back. But they just gave me a chair. And I was just another person that James could talk to whenever he wanted to. And, and then it became a thing a little bit that they went to me often enough that like they, they give me a mic and there's a like there was a locked off camera for a while. I have like a direct eyeline to to James. <laughs> Just it was all real. It was very surreal. But in my head, I'm still like if I was in high school watching this, yeah. I would think it was so funny that the the person that's supposed to be in charge of the show is just relentlessly getting pummeled comedically by the people who. <laughs> technically work for him and so i never overthink it in the moment i'm just trying to enjoy whatever's happening and i know that because we always tape long the producers and the editors are just going to make the best 10 or 15 minutes of that show and put it out there so and particularly i mean now we have an audience again and so it feels more like a it feels a little bit closer to what the show was before but james still has that looseness and ability to go to whoever on the staff is is in the studio right I think the pandemic really changed the face of late night forever. And and there is such a difference between like comedic performers that are performing just solo live to an audience and the jokes have to be fast and they've got to have like a tight set versus say a TV show like yours where people can banter back and forth and it can go on for an hour and you can get the best 15 minutes out of that. I feel like there's a lot more freedom in that and a lot more editorial control in the sense that you can bring out the very best of what the moment has to offer. So I want to come back to something. You mentioned camp earlier, and for me as a kid, camp was really transformative. It gave me a lot of opportunities that I just really wouldn't have had in the same way otherwise. So I wanted to kind of get your take on it. What was camp like for you growing up? What was school like for you? How are they different? And really sort of what is the long-term effect of kids being able to go to camp and just do something completely different than they would, say, for the rest of the year? I might have a slightly different feeling about camp then that I, I was I, I didn't start going to sleepaway camps until I was about 13. So from a from a school standpoint, there was a period of time where I went to like lots of different schools in a short window, whether that was because I moved once. I also like <laughs> uh, my elementary school used to go to sixth grade and then they got rid of the sixth grade and made that part of the middle school. So they changed junior high to middle school. So like it was another transition right away. And yeah. so I had to like, I think, learn how to make friends kind of quickly based on that. And I, I felt like I was pretty malleable in that window of time. But I'm also like, I'm a pretty small guy. I was always small. I always looked young. And so like, at that point, when kids are um, <laughs> turning into adults or look like adults, I was still looking like uh, like a child. So the idea that I think a lot of people have of camp was true for me in that you really have a chance to reinvent yourself and be someone different at camp than you were in school, or it's a slightly smaller environment. Like my schools were public schools and they were very large and there were hundreds of kids per class. But at the summer camp, you know, there might've been 40 kids in a, in an age group. So you get to know everybody a little bit better. If you're good at something, but not great at something, you might be great at that at camp. And so you got a chance to sort of, <laughs> if you're willing to put yourself out there, you have a chance to maybe sing for the first time in front of people or perform or, or, make videos or whatever those things are. And I think I got a little bit of that there at camp and I really enjoyed the environment. I also, uh, uh, I lost a parent um, when I was in ninth grade. And so going into school after my stepmom died was a very, very difficult emotional time. And you kind of, you know, it's not real, but you still feel like everyone's Everyone knows what happened to you and everyone feels sad and they're like, they're treating you with like, with gloves on and, um, right. 
Right. And it's sort of like, it is a nice thing for people to do to care enough to do that, but it doesn't feel great necessarily. Um, right. Just like to be normal again. And exactly. camp for me was in a different part of the country. I grew up in Maryland. The camp is in Massachusetts. And most of those kids at that camp were from the tri-state area, uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. And mm-hmm. so they didn't, not everybody knew my background and my story. And so that became a place where there was a little bit more freedom of not being tied to the things that had happened at home. So that became a really important, I think, connection for me, which continued through college and even afterwards. Uh, one of the things I really liked about camp were the connection with the counselors who were all, they seemed very old, but some of them were probably only four, five, six years older than, than we were at the time. And I knew like, I would like to be that type of person for other kids that I could be like an anchor, older, former camper, current counselor who would just be there and take kids through multiple years at camp as their counselor. And I was able to do that with a group. I was one group of kids counselor for essentially four summers. And so it it formed like a bond that I've kept with those kids now that they're married with kids of their own. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a really special thing. You know, once I once I left, it's always really hard to go back unless you're becoming an, an academic um, to have the summers off. And and so at a certain point, you know, when I moved out here to LA to pursue a career in entertainment in the entertainment business, I missed being there and going there. And I didn't. I had gone back to visit, but at a certain point, you go back and you're just looking at buildings in the place and reminiscing a little bit. But your connection to the people there is uh, less and less because you know less and less people there. And I didn't enjoy that feeling. So my wife actually is the one who suggested to me, like, well, why don't you do a sketch comedy show at the camp again? Because now you know how to do these things. You've been working in comedy for a long time. Maybe it's something you do with kids. And I was like, oh, wow, I wonder if they would be into it. And the camp owners were and they were like, well, why don't you pitch? it to the kids and just see if it's something they'd be interested in. And that's first group of kids in like the mid 2000s. They were interested in it too. And so for now, like the past 17 or 18 years, I go back for one week and I do basically a Saturday Night Live type of show with the oldest campers who mostly come up with the ideas on their own. They write them all that week. Uh, They do live sketches. They do short films. They do a couple of songs, but it it really has an SNL environment, but it's for camp and and it's all, it's like a... kind of a badge of honor now for a lot of them because it's usually like the funniest show of the summer and something that they've been watching for years now. And so when they finally get to do it, it's sort of like another mark they get to put on on the summer and, and their time there. Wow, that that is so special. And first of all, your wife's a genius. She's like, I don't know, why don't you go back to the place that you loved as a kid and do what you do now? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I think she might regret it a little bit, although she also loves it. And when she gets to go with me, uh, we always have a fun time. It's one of the rare times we get to work together. Wow, that that is so special. We are we are big fans of helping kids not only to have a good time, but also to help them transform into more creative and confident people. And camp just plays a huge role in that for a lot of kids. And it sounds like the kids that you get to work with have a fantastic time. You, I, I work with kids, some of them no matter what the show is, they want to perform. But a lot of the people who end up becoming a big, important part of the show, they've just sort of figured out their sense of humor. And this is the first time, one of the first times they've had a chance to really uh, explore it in a semi-professional environment. So if they have a good idea, they can see it through. Sometimes they're in it. Sometimes they've directed it or they have this ownership of this really funny thing that happened. And it kind of, it emboldens them in a really cool way. It's a, it's a different type of confidence when you've when you know you've created something that made people laugh like that is an endorphin that like 
so many of us chase regularly. Uh, oh, why yeah. we come out here and do this in the first place. Yeah, it's knowing that thing that we created, it, it's out there, damn it. And people are going to see it and they're going to experience it. And that's a really awesome feeling. I feel like that's one of the reasons why, you know, people go into entertainment specifically is because they're looking for that that reaction from from the crowd, that positive affirmation. And that that is just a huge, you know, dopamine rush. And uh, whenever people who've never been around show business or in show business before see it and they're like, oh, how did that how did that performer turn to drugs? And it's like, well... Drugs are like a dopamine hit, and that crowd reaction is a dopamine hit. So the second you get off the stage, if you don't keep getting that dopamine hit, you know, there's a bit of a vacuum, like, yeah. but in a positive way. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. The, the positive version. I'm not trying to. Uh, don't do drugs, kids. I don't encourage or endorse that aspect of it. It's just the comedy. High. <laughs> yes, co- comedy high is where it's at. Speaking of comedy highs, I wanted to say at Furb World, we're big fans of, you know, mutual pranks that people do. We're a big fan of silly things, funny things, mirth, obviously. We here at Furb World like to say that we follow in the tradition of the 1960s author and psychology enthusiast Ken Kesey, who famously wrote the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and uh, his shenanigans were featured in the book The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am, yeah. Uh Okay, awesome. And for those of you out there who haven't read it, basically what Ken Kesey would do is he would get like a school bus full of hippies in San Francisco and they would just like drive down the street and do like these just very public pranks on complete strangers where they would like have like a band up on top of the bus, you know, serenading the people going by and the people would just look at them like, what the hell is going on? And a lot of us in the Furby community, that's kind of what we do. Like we'll go out wearing our Furbies or we'll go out and we'll set up a Furby photo shoot in the wild. And people are like, what? And uh, it's a great way to meet your people. Like either people are going to run from you because they're terrified or they just kind of pretend you don't exist and ignore you. Or, and the best kind, are the people that come over like they're at Disneyland. Like, oh my God, a Furby. I remember this. It's the best thing in the world. And I feel like that sense of the wholesome prank, you know, where no one gets hurt, is kind of what a lot of late night is doing now. Like it's very deeply entertaining. And at the same time, it fulfills some sort of function in society. It's a long-winded way of asking, um, what do you think is sort of the function of the modern prank in basically in late night well i I mean i think that you kind of hit upon it even with the furby thing that element of surprise is very exciting surprise can come in the form of comedy which is when you're slightly on edge and then you can let this the air out because the thing you're not sure about is that genuinely funny and you can embrace that I, i think that's uh it can be a wonderful experience i mean it's happened to me a handful of times on the show i i can't tell you how many times I'm shocked at how good the crew is at keeping a secret from me all the way through like the people who literally worked for me where like they've done things like stormed my office, essentially maybe stormed is too strong a word, but they barged into the office and told me they were giving me a a makeover, an office makeover, something that I never asked for nor wanted. I liked my office, but they took (laughs) literally everything out of my, everything out of my office and refashioned it with things that they knew about me that I liked, which were things like horse racing and basketball and Conan (laughs) O'Brien. And they, they made a completely non-functioning office space for me with all of these things. Oh, and also I eat a lot of times for lunch, uh, a frozen butter chicken from Trader Joe's and they replaced my desk with just a fridge essentially that looked like a desk. But when you open it up, there were just 
I think, 40 or 50 Trader Joe's butter chickens there. Uh, (laughs) They replaced my phone with just a microwave that only had one button on it that said frozen chicken on it. (laughs) They gave me a shrine of Conan O'Brien candles and coffee mugs. And then they... I think the piece de resistance for them was they created a wall-sized mural that was my face on a centaur's body. Um, (laughs) So I was a half man, half horse. And fortunately, they they, they put my office back eventually the way that it was before. But, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, they even had shirts made up that said, uh, like, I don't know, office makeover, late night. (laughs) EP office makeover or something and uh i just like i couldn't believe all those things were happening just around me which either makes me the most gullible person that works there or they're just really good at keeping secrets and i i think the latter but it's the same thing where like while it's happening to me i'm like i can't i can't believe this is happening but also i'm like this is pretty funny i'm sure it's gonna end up pretty funny there's no point in holding on to like anger about those things yeah yeah it takes a certain kind of person that'll you know not just tolerate but maybe even like embrace that type of behavior and I also feel like entertainers are particularly in tune with other people's emotions like they learn to read others quickly and like maybe they're a little more trauma informed than other people (laughs) yeah that's probably although you know I mean like Jimmy Kimmel who I don't know personally but like he has done so many pranks to his yeah family members that at a certain point like i don't know how thanksgiving goes over there but um but they they keep doing it and i think they know it's all out of love and i think if that it is born from a place of kindness i think then that they know that you can handle the joke that is when that is when those are uh sort of i think best delivered and um appreciated Oh, I fully agree. And I think that what that usually hinges on is really respect and also trust for that person. Like when the prank's done in a very mutually, you know, caring and funny way, like they trust that, you know, you're not going to overreact, that's going to be hilarious for the audience, but also that you're going to, you're going to get it. Like at the end of it, you're going to be part of the joke and you're also going to think it's funny and mutually, you know, respectful and all those good things. I think one of the, uh, the great pranks, we the, the Late Late Show hasn't done a ton of pranks, but the, the one they did that, that I think sticks out the most is they pranked David Beckham once who was getting a statue in front of the the stadium that he played at in, in the US when he would play soccer here and they were getting ready to unveil it to him before they brought it out to uh to to its placement and the late late show knew this was happening and so they constructed this grotesque terrible version um of the statue and all of the the team was in on it but Beckham obviously didn't know about it and they recorded it because they knew that Beckham was going to be eventually a good sport, but also to watch him strain to be polite at this unveiling of something that really doesn't look like him and has all these weird prolonged uh, chin and body and like that's supposed to last in perpetuity for him. <laughs> that type of watching someone strain against what he clearly knows is terrible. That is also really fun. And the reveal also made it just as fun because the relief that he had that this was all that this was all a joke was uh was probably the best moment of the entire bit that is awesome and what an epic prank to commission a, a statue that looks just absolutely awful of somebody and then they have to pretend that they like it like this is fine 
I think there's such an art to designing a good prank. Like if you're in the television industry and you're behind the scenes, you know, it's on your radar to look for someone who's famous enough to where you're not like, you know, pulling them off their pedestal, someone that can take a joke and also finding a prank that's kind of in the sphere of something they might actually experience in real life. I think the best pranks are some of the ones like that that just expose someone's raw humanity and then they're in on the joke afterwards. And like, oh, okay, that is funny. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah you want everybody think- to look good and feel good about it afterwards. Right, exactly. So I also wanted to talk about what it's like when a show host announces that they're going to be moving on or they're going to retire at a certain point um, in late night specifically. Like, for example, when Craig Ferguson announced that he was going to be stepping down from the Late Late Show. Like at first there was this collective sense of like, oh, no, like, oh, we're going to miss him. But then that sense of almost like invincibility after he announced that the shows that he did after that were just silly like that gave him permission to just be silly like I think we can all agree once once the puppets came out and he started doing puppets at the intro of every show that was like what the hell like people just tuned in because they it was voyeuristic they wanted to see they they were like what's he gonna do next this guy's he lost it this is amazing and like those were when some of the best things happened like secretariat who's at the door and it's this horse at the door and and like Jeff Peterson coming out literally and figuratively and now it's time for Furb World's first ever itty bitty deep dive a baby Tiny deep dive, if you will. And for those of you that don't know, Jeff Peterson, the robot skeleton Jeff Peterson that was on The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, was made by Grant Imahara of Mythbusters fame, the late Grant Imahara. Grant, you left us far too soon. We miss you, we love you, and it's not the same around here without you. And that's today's mini deep dive. Seriously, though, if you don't know who Grant Imahar is, go look him up. He was an incredible maker and also just an amazing human being. But back to late night. I feel like late night is so special because Good Morning America, you know, when you wake up with your cup of coffee, it has a very different tone. It has a very different purpose than late night. And I was wondering if you could just kind of specifically talk about like what what do you think is the purpose of late night and specifically like when it starts to go off the rails and get really exciting? Well, I think that one of the keys to late night being successful for as long as it has is you have the kind of combination of steadiness. There's a there's a person or people that you are used to seeing and you like hearing at the end of the night or whenever you're watching it and you're curious what they're going to say about whatever the day's events are. And that is combined with people who are trying to consistently reinvent what they're doing. And so there is a little bit of a like, what's going to happen now? And when you can crack sort of that aspect of it that you're not quite sure what's going on that night, but you do have to tune in because you want to know what the hell is happening there. That is sort of like the sweet spot that you, I think, always hope happens. And sometimes that is complete randomness. And sometimes it is this build where something happens one night and you trust that you have an audience that comes on a regular basis or maybe every night that they'll know that that happened. And then you build upon that. And you're sort of turning it on its head a little bit in that everyone's sort of in on whatever that joke is. The Daily Show recently did it really well where, you know, Trevor makes an announcement that he's he's going to be leaving the show. And a couple of days later, Roy Wood Jr. is doing a bit where he's like, why did you mention my name when you were doing that? You didn't have to talk <laughs> about me. And that became a thing. And then Ronnie, a couple of nights after that, is like, why did you leave me out there when you were doing your announcement? I was on my way out. And so this whole like build upon <laughs> if you've seen it and then you see this other thing, it's even funnier. And so that is, <laughs> you know, like Letterman was great about it with uh, with any of the people that he used on the show. 
Kimmel was great about it, still is great about it with the like apologies to Matt Damon. We ran out of time, which just started as a joke and then became like this crazy build that no one could possibly have uh, predicted. Right. It happens with the Late Late Show with James Corden on a regular basis now because, you know, there's just like it happened with this whole. The reason you even know that I like horse racing is because (laughs) I mentioned it on a show once and then it turned into like a thing where I had to dress as a jockey once and then I had to get on a horse and I (laughs) got invited to a racetrack and they named a race after me. uh, And like all this crazy build where it still comes up on a regular basis. These are sort of the joys of late night that you can't do unless you're on every night and uh, creating this sort of like family and environment. Any of the successful shows have had those moments that become a little self-referential and you don't want to overdo it, but it's, it's really fun when it's, just a it's a little wink to uh to like the people who've been watching the show yeah yeah i feel like it's a form of validation as well and i also feel like we're missing that in a lot of society like you might get likes and follows and shares but it's not an ongoing dialogue usually that you know night after night and also there just aren't a lot of forums out there where people can really show their appreciation for you so deeply i mean where else does someone write an entire sketch that revolves around you know you and your interests i think it really is one of the highest levels of flattery that you can get yeah and i think well yeah you're right and i mean i think it happens in the podcast world just as much now too whatever your favorite podcast is you'll listen in there'll be phrases and words and fandoms and I I know that when people run into their favorite hosts out in the wild, they'll just yell something at them from a show. Everyone knows what it is. And uh, I I think there's got to be something really satisfying about that, too. Yeah, I really feel like it's a form of extended found family. It's like, those are your people. It's like, hey, cousin, how's it going? It absolutely is. I mean, I actually... um, Not that long ago, I went to a a live podcast taping and uh, especially when it comes to that. So and TV a little bit, too. But when you get to be in a place with all these other people who aren't there just because they wanted to see a show, but because they are fans, capital F, they all know the same thing then. And you sort of realize and recognize like, oh, my God, like I'm not alone in my I know I might be alone in my room or in my car while I'm listening (laughs) to this thing, but I am not alone. here. Yeah, it creates this profound sense of community and I think like in the non-religious sense it creates this really like sacred experience that I feel like we really evolved to have and we don't get a lot of it in other venues so I think yeah podcasts and uh, entertainment specifically television these are places where you know you can be a a super fan and really connect to something that's much bigger than yourself so the other day I rewatched the last episode of the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson back when Craig Ferguson was the host and he was stepping down and it was probably I think one of their best episodes ever. It was the one where he was standing on top of the desk, he, Bone Patrol, his band, you know, was playing and they had this montage of all these guests that had been on the show over the years that were playing along in the song and there was just like maybe like 100 people, and they were all just super well-known. It was incredible. And what really got to me was a lot of these people aren't with us anymore. We've got like Betty White, Bob Saget, Desmond Tutu, Larry King. And it reminds me that, you know, life is short. We've got limited time. And uh, I know when you're in it late night, 
feels busy and chaotic and like, oh my God, we have to do a show like every, not every day, but you know, regularly, like it, it doesn't stop. But then every now and then it feels like, you know, you get this chance to stand back and realize we're creating magic. Like this is maybe not every single second of every single show, but like this is, this is something, this is fire, you know? What what are your thoughts as, you know, the Late Late Show with James Corden wraps up on its final episodes about that? Are you getting any sort of perspective yet? Are you still in the thick of it? Is it like, you know, wh- where are you at? <laughs> well, you know, I think you're you're right that uh, there's a combination of sometimes you'll finish an episode and you'll be like, that was really good. That was a very special moment. And you, you can see what those are and you can feel them as an audience is reacting to something. And then also, you know, it is a volume business. So as Letterman used to say when he was on NBC, he would say, this is the only thing on NBC right now. And so I think that combination of things continues to happen on a daily basis. We are all, in my opinion, in a in a moment now where the finish line is coming closer and closer, and we are really appreciating, as we have throughout the pandemic, I think, and since we've been back, like how much fun we have together doing the show, and it's a really special group of people. And so we try not to take that for granted, even though sometimes the day can get away from any of us. I think that we're not quite at the point where we know exactly how it's going to end. And I should say, I get to be involved in the show, but it is truly the the producers and the writers and James that are the ones that are creating most special moments. So they're the ones that are, are going to be determining what they want to do as, as they get closer to the end. We're a very close-knit group, and I think that uh, that it is starting to dawn on a lot of us that there, there's not that many episodes left. Yeah. It's like senior year in high school a little bit. <laughs> There is a little bit of the like, there, it's both like, it's a little bit of anxiety. It's a little bit of a, uh, we're going to miss this place and a little bit of a, let's go out with a bang. And I think that more often than not, we are in the like, let's just do everything we've ever wanted to do now. Let's just do it all. That's really fun. The floodgates are open. Let's go for it. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's so well, what are they going to do? Are they going to fire me? He said that many times on the show. It's like, yeah, he's got a point. I love it. Yeah, it's literally like, you know, the kids in high school, like, what are you going to do? Expel me? It's two weeks left of school. Come on. Like, it's just. Yeah. And then on a personal level, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't want you to give anything away specifically, but like, what do you kind of see yourself doing next? And if you can't talk about immediate term next, like sort of next five years from now, 10 years from now, like, you know, what what are your thoughts for the, the future, be it close up or far off? For me, I mean, I really love late night and um, I think it is a real privilege to be able to work on and help to foster the next iteration of these shows. So my hope is to continue to be able to do that and work with the people who enjoy this type of comedy in this daily environment as uh, however it comes to them. And the thing that's cool for me is I'm at a point where uh, I might be one of the older ones in the room and I've been around a lot of these shows now, but it's no less exciting for me than it was when I first started. And so I think that'll still be something that I that I do as, as long as I possibly can. That's awesome. I, I wish that for you. So back when you started in television, you started in the PAGE program, if I remember correctly. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what is the PAGE program? And also for those of our listeners out there thinking of going into television, what kind of advice do you have for them? Yeah, it does exist similarly. There's a PAGE program in New York and there's one in LA. And I think the one in New York probably mirrors what we did when I was here in LA because there were more late night shows in LA at that point uh, at NBC. 
So, you know, we gave tours, we sat people at the shows, we worked on uh, whatever shows had audiences, we helped get them seated and in and out. And then we got a chance to do assignments where we'd get to work in an office for three months or so, whether that was like development or comedy or promo, publicity, whatever, whatever was around. It's kind of like a, an internship, but it gave you a chance to get real experience working on someone's desk. And so... It was a really valuable job experience for me. It's where I met most of my friends. It's where I met my wife. It's almost like a grad school situation for the entertainment business in a lot of ways. And the thing that's funny is the further removed I am from the beginnings of it, the less I know how to break in today because (laughs) things change so regularly. So my suggestion always is if you are looking to break into the business, talk to someone who's only been in it for like three or four years because they'll know more of the tricks of the trade. But the... I think sometimes the hardest thing to do is just take that first step. And that might be moving to a new city or sending that email or resume somewhere or doing the application because a lot of people think about it and they don't actually do it. And if you've taken the courage and just the belief in yourself to try that first thing, then you have the whole world and you'll never regret that opportunity that you gave yourself to try it. And it might be a thing where you realize, you know what, I'm glad I tried it but that's not for me. I'd actually rather do thing X. Or you might be in this new city for the next 45 or 50 years. So I think that in this day and age, when so many strange things have happened the world over, if you have a passion, uh, you almost owe it to yourself to uh, take a chance and, and live that dream a little. That's really good advice. A lot of our listeners are creative people, artists, musicians. And I know a lot of times creative people can get inside their own heads. And it's really hard to take that first step. So I I think that's good advice. Get out there, take the first step, send that email, you know, reply to somebody, make a ye olden phone call if you have to. Just start and keep creating. You'll find your thing. But as a creative, you have to keep creating because as Hunter S. Thompson wrote, we can't stop here. This is bat country. So just remember it's bat country. Keep going, keep creating. Well, Nick, it's been an amazing conversation. We have unfortunately come to the end of our time for this podcast episode. And I want to say thanks so much for being such an insightful and interesting and just all around cool guest. We have really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking me. Sure thing. Any closing thoughts to our Ferb fans? I feel I've probably uh, talked as long as I possibly could. And I'm sure you'll do a great job editing this to make it uh, as succinct as possible. And uh And I think that's what your Furby fans deserve. Well, folks, it's time once again to wrap up another episode of the Furb World Podcast. So we're going to join hearts, heads, hands, peets, feets, and even our wiggly ears as we say good night, good day, good morning, good journey to all of you out there in podcast land. Keep your friends close and your Furbs closer and join us next time for another exciting episode of the Furb World Podcast as we dive together into the Ditherverse. Now it's time for our nonprofit shout out. At the end of every episode, we'll list some of our favorite nonprofits so you can donate to them and really make a difference. Or if you're in need of help or know someone else who is, these are some places that might be able to help. Nonprofit number one, Trans Lifeline, a peer support crisis hotline serving transgender people by offering phone support and micro grants available in the United States and Canada. Nonprofit number two, the National Center for Transgender Equality, 
Do you want to fight for trans rights? The National Center for Transgender Equality will help you take national and local action. Number three, the Southern Poverty Law Center. This nonprofit specializes in civil rights and public interest legislation. They also monitor hate groups and other extremist groups and report their activities to law enforcement agencies. Number four, the Native American Rights Fund, providing legal advocacy to help create a world where Native rights, resources, and lifeways are protected. Number five, and one of my favorites, the Sogo Riate Land Trust. This indigenous Bay Area nonprofit seeks to rematriate the land that is now known as Oakland, San Francisco, and basically the Bay Area in California. These are just some of our favorite nonprofits, but we also encourage you to get involved with nonprofits on a local level. We encourage you to do your part when you can. Volunteer for these organizations. Ask how you can help. Donate money when you can. Some organizations even accept donations like used cars, so you never know. It's important to get involved. You can make a difference. Uh, this concludes the broadcast of the Furb World Into the Dithiverse podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope to have you next time.